0: I'm going to be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11, and this is on page 957. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, These people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake in the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate or partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market, meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat of it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ.
1: Well, as we continue on in our sermon series uh, in the Apostle Paul's first canonical letter to the church at Corinth, let's remember the larger context here. Paul founded... This church in Corinth, somewhere around 50 AD, he stayed there for a few years, probably about two and a half years, and we know uh, that he worked as a tent maker to support himself. We thought about that last week, about how Paul refused to take money from the Corinthians, but instead uh, supported himself. Once Paul moved on from Corinth to the city of Ephesus to work on the, the church there, it was probably about 52 or 53 AD. He wrote a letter back to the church at Corinth, responding to reports of immorality and conflict in the congregation. Uh, the church responded to Paul's letter with a letter of their own, pushing back on some of his instructions, putting some pretty pointed questions to him. It seems like they were even complaining about some of the, the things that he had put in place during his time amongst them. We know Paul dispatched Timothy, his right-hand man, to the church to try and handle some of the issues. And now around 55 AD, Paul wrote the letter that is before us this morning, what we call 1 Corinthians. And in it, he addresses all sorts of questions and issues. In chapters 8 to 10 of 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul is specifically responding to arguments about whether or not it's appropriate for Christians to eat meat that had been offered in sacrifice at the the pagan temples in Corinth. Corinth was a city full of temples, And those temples served as both sites of pagan worship, but also something like a community center. Uh, The meat from the animals that were sacrificed there to the false gods were served to diners in the temple, almost like a kind of restaurant. And it was also sold in the, the meat markets, which were set up right outside the temple. And so the question was, are Christians free to eat that meat? It seems that when Paul was among them, he had prohibited them from doing so or at least discouraged it. And some of the people in the church, uh, in Paul's absence, had gone back to this practice. Uh, There was a faction in the church that was arguing that since false gods aren't real, and since God doesn't seem to prescribe any particular food that we eat as better than another, in the end, we as Christians are free to eat that meat. So Paul's responding to that argument in chapter 8. He told them that their conduct should be guided not by mere knowledge, not by a desire to sort of push the limits of their freedom, but their conduct should be guided by a concern for the spiritual well-being of others in the church. In chapter 9, we saw Paul defend his authority. It seems that some in Corinth were questioning whether or not they really even had to listen to him he reminded them that, that his highest priority was the spread of the gospel. And he warned them not to take the grace of God and make it an excuse for sin. We even see that at the end of the, the chapter that Caleb just read for us, as he says that uh, his, um, his goal there in verses 32 and 33 is to give no offense, he says, to Jew or Greek or to the church of God, but try to please everyone in everything I do. Right? He, he wasn't in this for himself. He wasn't coming to this question, asking, what, "What am I free to do?" but rather, "What would serve other people?" and even help perhaps lower barriers to them hearing the gospel. Last week in chapter nine, we saw Paul remind the church that the highest priority is the gospel message. He warned the church not to take the grace of God and make it an excuse for spiritual laziness or sin. So chapter 9 ends this way, if you remember from last week, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here, Paul is pressing on the church the gravity of the situation. These are not academic points that can be safely debated from an ivory tower. He says our spiritual lives are a marathon. And if you're inattentive to the way you run, you could find yourself disqualified. And that leads into what we're going to consider here in chapter 10. In terms of an outline of this chapter, I really just want to tackle it in order. So in verses 1 to 13, we see Paul using the example of the Israelites in the Old Testament to try and teach the Corinthians something about their situation. In verses 14 to 22, we see a specific warning about idolatry. And then from verse 23, really down to the first verse of chapter 11, we see a principle about how to make decisions in these sort of gray areas of life. So let's start by looking at verses 1 to 13. This forms a sort of natural transition from the end of chapter 9. As I remember, or as I mentioned, Paul has been encouraging the Corinthians to exercise exercise self-discipline in their lives so they won't be disqualified from the metaphorical race of the Christian life. And so here he gives them, at the beginning of chapter 10, an example of what he means. He begins chapter 10 with a cautionary tale about the people of Israel, people who had been disqualified, in a manner of speaking, due to their sinfulness. Paul assumes that the Corinthians know these stories from the Old Testament, but let me just run quickly through it to make sure we're on the same page. So in the book of Genesis, God called out the descendants of a man named Abraham. And the idea is that these people, this nation, would would be a special people to God. And they would be a vehicle of his salvation and blessing to all the world. In the book of Exodus, we see these people, the the nation of Israel, enslaved in the land of Egypt. Uh, As we thought about. Just a moment ago, from our reading in Exodus 20, God reminds the people that He delivered them from bondage, from slavery in the house of Egypt. God led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and took them into the desert with the goal of bringing them to a land that He had promised to them. He went before them, leading them in a pillar of cloud that they could follow. You see, Paul mentions that there in verse 1. He says, Our fathers, that is the nation of Israel, were all under the cloud. That is, they were being led by God's presence in a cloud. Well, along the way, as this cloud of God's presence led them out of Egypt and towards the promised land, our fathers ran into the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was in hot pursuit, and it seemed like there was was no way forward. God miraculously caused the waters to part, and the nation of Israel went through as on dry land with both sides of the, the Red Sea sort of piled up on either side of them. Uh, You see, again, Paul mentions that in verse 1. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Uh, Marching through the desert, once they got on the other side of the Red Sea, was challenging, however. There was the question, what were the Israelites going to eat? They were this massive nation in a desert. And so God provided for them miraculous bread called manna. Every day they would wake up. And there would be a fresh supply of miraculous bread. That seems to be the spiritual food that Paul mentions there in verse 3 when he says uh, they all ate the same spiritual food. But there's also the question of what what to drink out in the desert. And so God provided miraculous water from them. Moses struck a rock and water poured out of it. This seems to be the spiritual drink that Paul mentions there in verse 4. He says all drank the same spiritual drink. But there in verse five, Paul reminds the church at Corinth that God was not pleased with most of the Israelites and that most of them died in the desert. Well, why was God not pleased? Paul gives them four reasons. There in verse seven, he tells them that they were idolaters. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If you remember, the people of Israel created a golden calf for themselves. And they began to worship it in the wilderness instead of worshiping Yahweh, the true God who had saved them. As a result, 3,000 of the people of Israel died under God's judgment. There in verse 8, we're told that they indulged in sexual immorality. This seems to be a reference back to Numbers 25, where we read about a time when the the people of Israel began to engage in immorality with the people of Moab. It seems like it was specifically uh, part of their worship of their pagan god, Baal. Paul tells us there in verse 8 that as a result of this immorality, 23,000 fell on a single day. The third thing there in verse 9, we see that they put the Lord to the test. Uh, This is a reference to an event recorded for us in Numbers 21, where the people began to complain about their living conditions, and they began to suggest that the Lord really wasn't present among them. And as a result, many people died from the bite of fiery serpents, as Paul mentions there at the end of verse 9. And then fourth and finally, there in verse 10, we see they grumbled. This is a reference to an event recorded for us in Numbers chapter 14. There the people of Israel are longing to go back to Egypt. They're complaining, wishing that they would just died in the wilderness, rather than having to trust the Lord daily to bring them into the land. They wanted to choose a new leader for themselves, someone who would lead them back into slavery. And as a result, many of them died by plague. The end result was that the vast majority of that generation died in the desert without ever seeing the promised land. You can see why Paul would bring up this example to the Corinthians. We saw in chapter 6 that they were sexually immoral, just like the Israelites. They they were participating in the the prostitution as part of the temple worship in their city. Just like the Israelites, they were settling in to a hard-hearted opposition to God's appointed leader. Remember in chapter 9, Paul's defending his apostolic authority. The people of Israel rejected Moses' leadership over and over again. They went their own way, and it had disastrous consequences. In the same way, Paul is warning the Corinthians that their increasingly antagonistic relationship with him was actually spiritually dangerous. They were questioning Paul's apostolic authority. Just like the Israelites did to Moses. If you want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this afternoon, you'll see that even at a later date, Paul is still making that connection between his authority and his leadership and that of Moses. And Paul says, look what happens when the, when the Israelites opposed Moses. Here's the thing: Paul wants the church at Corinth to learn from this example. Right? The old saying is that. wisdom isn't learning from your mistakes, it's learning from the mistakes of others, right? There's a lot that we can learn from these Old Testament stories that Paul brings up. They actually teach us quite a bit about the Lord Jesus himself. So in the the story of the the fiery serpents there in verse 9, right, that story from Numbers 21, we, we see a picture of the salvation that Jesus won for us on the cross, Jesus explicitly in John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 tells us that that story is actually about him. In the story of the rock that provides water, again, we see a picture of Christ. Paul even tells us here that that rock was Christ, that that Jesus is the one stricken with the judgment that we deserve so that we could get what we need in order to live. Right, The Israelites are rebelling against God, complaining about him. And so God says, strike this rock and water will come out. Basically, what you deserve to have happened to you to be stricken, do that to this rock and you'll receive life. Right? Paul tells us that rock was actually a picture of Christ himself, the one stricken for our salvation, the one who received what we deserve for our sins so that we might have the water of life. But that's actually not what Paul focuses on here. Instead, what he wants to press home is the way that these stories were written down as examples for us. To serve us so that we would learn from their mistakes. So that we wouldn't do the things that they did. You see that there in verse 6. These things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. The people of Israel desired evil and paid the price for it they were disqualified they didn't finish their race they never saw the promised land in the same way as Paul warned us at the end of chapter nine and as he continues here if we as Christians give ourselves over to the same patterns of sin and rebellion we risk being disqualified just as they were so brothers and sisters when we hear these stories we shouldn't think wow that's crazy we should think, how do I avoid that fate? How can I run my race in such a way as to not be disqualified before I take hold of that imperishable wreath? How do I avoid being like the people of Israel? There in verse six, again, they desired evil. They gave in to their lusts. They allowed their desire for food and water and sex and pleasure to overwhelm their desire for God. I think Paul tells us here in this section from verse 1 to verse 13, three things that we should not do if we want to avoid Israel's fate. First, we should not assume that your past spiritual experiences mean that you're spiritually safe in the present shouldn't assume that your past spiritual experiences mean that you're spiritually safe now. As we've said before, it seems likely that some of the Corinthians were confident that they could handle eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols because they were spiritually protected. They had undergone baptism and participated in the Lord's Supper. And so they thought they could handle sort of a a dalliance with false gods and false worship. But here Paul reminds them that the people of Israel, well, they'd also experienced a kind of baptism, a baptism in the Red Sea there in verse 1. You have had the the bread at the Lord's Supper. Well, in the same way, the people of Israel had eaten spiritual food given to them by God there in verse 3. You've drunk from the cup at the Lord's table. Well, Paul reminds us here in verse 4 that these Israelites who perished, they they had all drank from a spiritual drink. It seems that Paul wants to disabuse them of the notion that the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are simply grace dispensers. that sort of work automatically, as if merely taking the Lord's Supper, merely being baptized, imparts grace to you and somehow immunizes you against the effects of sin. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are wonderful gifts to us as believers and they can be means by which God gives us grace to fight against sin and temptation. But they're not magical. Right, the water in which we baptize people, like I hate to ruin the illusion, it comes from a garden hose. Right, this bread and wine comes from the grocery store. Right, they are not magical. They don't impart grace in and of themselves. The thing that makes them spiritually useful to us is when we participate in these things with faith in Christ. When we turn from our sin and trust his promises and so come forward to be baptized or come forward to the Lord's table. As you come to baptism or come to the Lord's table in faith, then yes, you do experience grace. You have pictured for you the reality of the promises that God has made to you in Christ. Christ is present with us at his table and communes with us. right? And we receive what we need to fight against sin and run our race. But we don't want to fall into the trap of merely thinking that participating in those things is somehow magically protecting us. We don't want to fall into the trap of looking back at some past spiritual experience that you might have had once. Maybe a, a time when you felt very close to God. Maybe a time in the past when you walked very faithfully with him. Maybe a, a time in the past where you had an emotional sense of God's closeness. Right? If those things were genuine, then they can be an encouragement to you as you fight against sin in the present. But brothers and sisters, they can never be a substitute for fighting against sin in the present. The second thing Paul says we can't do is don't imagine for a second that you're too strong to fall. Look what he says there in verse 12. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Again, this seems to be particularly a problem for the Corinthians. They thought they were strong enough, spiritually speaking, to be able to walk into a temple and and sit down at the table of an idol and just eat without experiencing any negative spiritual consequences. But believing that you can't fall, believing that you're much stronger than other people, spiritually speaking, well, that's the first step towards disaster. Because when you're convinced that you're strong, you let your guard down. And you make yourself easy pickings. One of the ways that we fight against sin, one of the ways that we take heed not to be disqualified in our race is by cultivating humility. By acknowledging that better people than you have fallen into terrible sin. By acknowledging that there is no sin so far beneath you that you don't need to be diligent about fighting against it by acknowledging that no amount of spiritual growth or attainment means that you're above the need to examine your life, to put to death your sinful desires, and to talk honestly with others about your struggles. Brothers and sisters, you have to decide whether you want to pursue real holiness or whether you prefer to maintain the illusion that you're strong. You have to choose. Actually fighting against sin in your life is going to mean being open, being honest, admitting some things that you might not want to admit, acknowledging that, in fact, you're not too strong. Paul says here, take heed. If you think you can't fall, you are headed down the wrong path. Finally, the third thing Paul says, don't believe that you must give in to temptation. Look what Paul says there in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be be able to endure it. Paul says no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man, to humanity. That is to say the temptations the Corinthians were facing were not qualitatively different from those experienced by the Israelites. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. The idolatry, the sexual immorality, the grumbling that characterized Israel and characterized Corinth are still temptations for us today. We are not too strong, too wise, too immune to them. And so we should look at our own lives and see how it is that we experience these temptations, how it is that we are tempted to live like the Israelites lived in the desert. We should look at our lives and see where we're tempted to sexual immorality. We should see where we're tempted to grumble against the Lord and against his providence for our lives. We should look to see whether or not we complain and gripe about our material possessions Our jobs, our spouses, our brothers and sisters in the church. We should look to see if we're tempted to doubt the Lord's goodness and his trustworthiness. We can be sure that we'll face temptation. But what Paul says here is that we should never imagine that sin is inevitable. We should never imagine that we have to give in to sin and temptation at some point. The second half of verse 13 carries a very precious promise for us as we seek to put to death idolatry and sin. Paul writes there that God is faithful. Brothers and sisters, we can fight against temptation because God is faithful. Not because you are so strong that you couldn't possibly fall, but because God is faithful. We're not always faithful, but God is 100% of the time. Our hope in times of temptation is rooted in his character. In fact, God promises here to do two things for us when we're tempted. First, it says that he will prevent us from being tempted beyond what we can bear. We know that God himself tempts no one to sin. The book of James tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. And that is true. But God does allow trials and temptations in our lives in order to help us mature. Again, James tells us in chapter one, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we have a promise here that God will never allow us to be tempted in such a way that it's beyond our ability to bear it. God's faithful, Paul says there in verse 13. We don't have to worry about whether that's ever not going to be true. God will always take care of us in that way. You will never face a temptation that isn't common to all man, and you'll never face a temptation that's beyond what you can bear. The second thing God promises is that he'll always provide a way of escape. There will always be a way out. There's always an opportunity to say no. There's nothing inevitable about sin. I think a lot of our struggle with temptation are rooted in a failure to believe this truth we experience temptation in our daily lives, the temptation to yell at our kids, to look at pornography, to gossip about coworkers, to to descend into fear and dread, whatever it is. And it can seem when you're in the throes of temptation, like there is no possible way out, that sin is going to win in the end. And so you might as well just give in now. You might as well just get it over with. We don't really believe that holiness is a possibility, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can really grow and change and put sin to death. But here we have a wonderful encouragement to set ourselves against sin, right? If you go into the gym and your job in the gym is to to bench press the weight that's on on the bar and you look at it and you go, "There, there is no way I can do it, well, you've already lost the battle, right? You've already decided, well, it's gonna, it's gonna end in failure. But if you went in there and you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can lift that weight, it might be difficult, but right? you might have to work at it, but you absolutely have the strength given to you by God, so the metaphor breaks down a bit here, but <laughs> right, to lift that weight, you can, you can go in there with confidence, right? You're not gonna give in. We have this wonderful encouragement God will never put more weight on the bar than you can lift. God promises to help you. If you feel overwhelmed by a certain sin, by a certain temptation, you don't have to give in to it. You're not consigned to failure. You're not powerless against it. God is faithful. Paul says he'll never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, listen, you might need help. You might need to change something about your life. You might need to talk to someone and enlist the support of a brother or a sister in the church. But you can know for certain that you're never beyond the strength and the resources that the Lord has given you to fight against sin. So take a minute and think about a temptation that you're going to face in the coming week. If you want, take a minute, ask the Holy Spirit to prick your conscience. Whatever it is, how does the fact that God is faithful help you to prepare for that temptation that you know is coming? How does it help that God promises in his word that whatever you experience, it's not beyond what you're able to bear? How does it help that he promises to provide a way out so that you can escape from temptation? Brothers and sisters, I think this has a really important implication for us as a church family. If we really understand what Paul's saying here in these verses, I think it'll change the way we relate to one another. The fact is, the temptations that we face are common, Paul says, to all man. That means we're connected to the past all of our technology, all of our sophistication, it's only created new ways for us to experience all of the same old temptations. We have not invented any sins. We have not invented any ways to lust after evil. We are connected to the past. Our temptations are, are connected to theirs. But even more importantly, it means that we're connected to one another. Right? This truth ought to move us in compassion for sin-sick people. It ought to create in us humility when we consider our own souls. When you hear of a brother or sister falling into sin, is your first instinct to be judgmental or condemning? When you see weakness or failure in your brother or sister, are you quick to pounce on them? Or are you compassionate? Seeing how you too could be tempted in just the same way, if not to the exact same behavior, at least to give in to the same sinful impulse standing behind the behavior. I think if we as a church really believe what Paul's saying here, it will help to make us a place where people can be open about their struggles, honest about the temptations they face, where people can actually get the help they need to grow in Christ and stand against temptation. If you, as an individual, cultivate humility... That postures you as a fellow sinner fighting against temptation by God's grace rather than a guru dispensing wisdom, then people would be much more likely to seek you out for help. So let's work, let's pray together to make this church a place where this defines our culture that, that temptation and sin is never inevitable, that God never leaves us on an island where we have no choice but to sin but where we're compassionate, knowing that the temptations we face are common to all. That brings us to the middle section of this chapter there in verses 14 to 22. So we read there, starting in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice... They offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So here Paul begins his long-delayed conclusion to his argument with the Corinthians about eating food sacrificed to idols. There in verse 14, he tells them to flee from idolatry. That rule must control all their thinking. We read from the Ten Commandments earlier God is unambiguous. His position on idolatry is exceedingly clear. In chapter 8, Paul told us that it was one thing to eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol at some point in the past. That's a morally neutral matter in one sense. It's just meat, it doesn't really matter. As long as your conscience allows you to do it, as long as you're not harming the conscience of a brother or sister in Christ, eat away. But here in chapter 10, Paul that what they cannot do is participate in the sacred meals in the temple. That is to say, followers of Christ cannot sit down and take part of the, the ceremonies in the temple where these false gods were worshipped and the meals were eaten. Uh, Paul bases his prohibition on three things. First, he understands the importance of these sacred meals. Uh, There in verse 18, he talks about the the, um, habits and the the posture of the people of Israel. Right in their temple, the priests would eat from the sacrifices made to God. And it was understood that when they did so, the Lord was particularly present with them in that meal. Paul points them also to their own experience with the Lord's Supper. He reminds them of what they already know about the cup of blessing and the bread that we break. There in verse 16, he says that it's a participation in Christ. That word participation, it can mean fellowship or, or communion. The idea is that when you eat this meal, you're actually doing something. There in verse 17, he says we're living out our unity with one another in the church And we're also worshiping and fellowshipping. We're participating in Jesus. Jesus is present here with us in the meal. He's communing with us. And so you can see from Paul's perspective why a Christian can't go into the temple and and sit down and drink a cup and, and eat a meal in honor of an idol, of a false God. It's an act of worship. They believed that their deity was present in that meal. Paul's saying, when you come to the Lord's table, you're having very real fellowship with your brothers and sisters and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how can you go to an idol's table and have fellowship with the pagan worshipers there and worship their false god along with them? The second basis for Paul's prohibition Is his understanding based on the Old Testament of the demonic nature of idolatry. You see that in verses 19 to 21. There in verse 19, he reaffirms his his earlier assertion that an idol isn't anything, right? It's just a hunk of wood. There there is no god Zeus, there is no Apollo, right? Athena doesn't actually exist. But there in verse 20, Paul tells them that when pagans go to worship these non existent gods, They are offering sacrifices to very real demons, right? Not to a being who can rightly be called God, but to demonic forces. He's working off an understanding that comes from Deuteronomy 32 and the so-called Song of Moses. There in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is reflecting on the propensity of the people of Israel to worship idols. And he says this in verse 17, they sacrificed to demons, That were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So, Paul's saying that while it is true that a false god is nothing, right? Apollo doesn't exist, there is a demonic force that stands behind these systems of false worship. And so, here at the end of verse 20, he presses home his point you shouldn't participate. You shouldn't have fellowship. You shouldn't have communion with demons. You can't drink the cup of Christ on Sunday and then go drink the cup with the demon the rest of the week. You can't eat at the Lord's table on Sunday and then throw down at a demon-inspired festival during the rest of the week. Paul understands that this false worship is actually demonic. The third basis for his prohibition is there in verse 22, and that is the character of the Lord himself. He reminds the church that the Lord is a jealous God. He warns them, asking rhetorically, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Right? He tells us it's, it's not a situation that's going to end well for us. Right? Are you stronger than God, that you, that you want to go toe-to-toe with him? Now, when we talk about God's jealousy... We're not talking about the sinful emotion that characterizes us as human beings when we're jealous, right? We want something someone else has. We are jealous of them, right? We're, we're oftentimes petty. We're wanting someone else's attention and affection and angry when they give it to someone else. But that's not what God's jealousy is like. God's jealousy is his holy and perfect desire to preserve the truth that he alone is our creator, And he alone is worthy to be worshipped as our God. God's jealousy is simply his praiseworthy zeal to preserve some things that are very precious, like his honor and his relationship with his people. And so when God's people take what they owe to him, their love and worship, and offer it to demons instead, the Lord is rightly provoked it would not be honorable or good if God didn't care. He himself would be an idolater if he were to turn a blind eye and simply allow his people to go worship other gods. Right, just as a husband rightly wants his wife only to love him, so God will not abide our worship of other so-called gods. God's. Just as a parent doesn't stand by and happily watch their child give their life to things that will destroy them, so God jealously loves you in such a way that he won't stand by unprovoked while you give your worship to demons. So Christians can't participate in the worship of false gods. We cannot participate in the worship practices of false religions. We can't, as Christians, go to a mosque where they're worshiping a false god. You can't participate in the worship service there. There can be no mixing of the truth about the true God and other forms of worship. And we as Christians should never do anything that encourages the worship of any false God. God is worthy of our undivided attention and devotion. And that brings us to the third section of this chapter, verses 23 to the first verse of chapter 11. Here Paul provides some practical guidance on how we ought to act when we find ourselves in these kinds of situations. Paul finishes his thoughts about meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and he reiterates his basic position. Again, he sees a lot of latitude for Christians in sort of non-moral issues. He quotes from the Corinthians again with respect to these gray areas, saying there, all things are lawful in verse 23. The idea is that when it comes to things like eating food and and drinking and the choices we make about what to eat and drink and what we wear, everything is lawful. We're not under the law. God doesn't tell us what to do. You can go home and have chili for lunch or you can have a salad. These are indifferent matters. You can wear a sweater. You can wear a T-shirt. These things don't matter. All things are lawful. There are no unclean foods. So Paul writes there. He says, eat whatever is sold. This is verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Right? Paul's saying, look, go to the butcher, buy the meat, you don't have to ask any questions. As long as you are not knowingly participating in the worship of demons, you've got no problem. In the same way, if you're at a friend's house and he serves you meat, you don't have to ask where it came from. There's nothing wrong with it. But Paul simply reminds the church, as he did back in chapter 8, to temper their freedom with concern for their brothers and sisters. In this way, he's inviting us to follow the example that he laid out in chapters eight and nine. In the first verse of chapter 11, there, you see Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Uh, Paul uh, is laying out for us a way of life. As we thought about last week, Paul sacrificed his rights. He sacrificed what what he had the freedom to do in order to serve and benefit his brothers and sisters in Christ. And in so doing, he was acting just like the Lord Jesus, the the ultimate one who did not hold and cling closely uh, to his his rights, but freely gave them up for our benefit. And so Paul makes it explicit. We ought to follow him as he's following Christ in this other preferring, self-denying way of life. There in verse 24, he says, Don't seek your own good, but seek the good of your neighbor. And not everything that's permissible to you as a Christian actually helps to build up other people. There in verse 28, Paul gives the example. If a Christian is served meat in a friend's home, again, he can eat it without question. But, Paul says, if someone brings up the fact that it's been sacrificed to an idol... Right, it's not clear if the person raising the question is another Christian, or maybe it's the host themselves who's not a Christian. Uh, Paul says, in that situation, you need to refrain from eating. Because it's wrong to eat? No. Paul says, why, why would my freedom sort of be constrained by someone else's conscience? But, but because you care so much about that person, that unbeliever might be confused when you eat they might be somehow encouraged to think, well, look, my friend is a Christian and he happily eats meat that's been sacrificed to my God. There must not be any difference between our religions. He must think that what I'm doing when I go to worship my false god is, is fine and good. Right? And Paul says, you can't do that. You can't create that confusion out of love for that person. You want to clarify things for them. And so you'll give up your right to eat that meat. Again, it's just a dead cow. There's no sort of moral basis on which you'd say yes or no to a steak, right? I'm going to give up my rights for the benefit of someone else. In the same way, if that person who's who's bringing up the issue is a Christian, perhaps their conscience is weak and will be defiled if they see me eating that meat. So Paul says in that situation, even though you're free to eat, you shouldn't. You shouldn't take part. What Paul says there in verse 31 is a brilliant summary of everything he's been saying in chapters 8 to 10. He says there, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what matters. Eating and drinking doesn't matter. What matters is the glory of God. You can glorify God by delighting in his creation. Take a bite. Take a drink. Praise God who thought to make steak taste so wonderful. It's a good gift from him. You can honor him by truly enjoying what he's made. You can also glorify God by loving the people made in his image. And so you can glorify God by not eating or not drinking because you're worried about someone else's welfare. Paul says that he seeks the good of others so that they might be saved. And he encourages the Corinthians to do the same. God is glorified when we care more about other people than about exercising our freedoms. The two things that are off-limits to us are things that violate God's clear expressed will, idolatry, and things that harm other people. You can't harm your brother or sister. You can't wound their conscience to the glory of God. You can't participate in demon worship to the glory of God. And so those things are off-limits to us. But in general, we are free to glorify God in all the choices that we make by receiving everything from him with joy and thanksgiving, and by respecting his commands. So brothers and sisters, let's come to the Lord's table now. Here we have participation in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Here we have set before us a God-ordained way of worshiping him and communing with him. In the Lord's table, we have laid before us pictures of the most important truths in the world. that The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. His blood was shed. His body was broken for our sins. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And, And by virtue of his resurrection is present with us at the table. And so when we come to him in faith, we experience communion with him and with one another. And so as we seek to live our lives wholeheartedly devoted to the God who deserves all of our love and attention, uh, let's come to the table together in faith and worship him. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for your righteous and holy jealousy. You alone are worthy of our undivided love and worship. And so we thank you and we praise you that in your love you will settle for nothing less than all of our hearts and all of our worship. Lord Jesus, we delight in the communion we have with you in the way that you have uh, gone before us, paying the price for our sin, leaving us an example of what it looks like to live a life of preferring the interests of others and sacrificing our rights for the good of our brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we think through the different issues in our lives. We pray that you'd help us in times of temptation to believe that God is faithful and that there's always a way of escape. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to delight in Christ for his glory. Amen.